Welcome to Devotions in the Deep End. I'm Cam Buchanan, and this is a carefully crafted devotional journey through the New Testament. Let's venture into deeper water as we consider what it means to follow Jesus in the world we live in now. Welcome back to Devotions in the Deep End. Our passage for this episode is Luke chapter 7, verses 11 to 17. Let's read that now. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, His heart went out to her and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Now this passage opens with the plight of a mother, but it also shows us some great insights about Jesus' ministry to us all. First, let's consider this passage at face value. There is a heap of evidence through the Old Testament to show that God was very interested in the role and welfare of the mothers of his people. In some cases, we see him step onto the scene as he engages with women who desperately want to be mothers but cannot. For example, 1 Samuel tells us of a young bride named Hannah who seemed to be having this issue, but the Lord answers her prayer for a son. There are several others that can join that list as recipients of this type of divine intervention. And when mothers and wives suddenly found themselves going it alone as widows, we see the Lord was all over that as well. In Exodus chapter 22, the Lord gives his people Israel a really strong order on their behalf. It says this, Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. If you do, and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. We have an unambiguous idea here that God was taking their welfare really seriously. And from Deuteronomy onwards, we see the Lord reinforcing this strong mandate time and again. The leaders of Israel knew this well, as King David in Psalm 68 verse 5 demonstrates. This is what that verse said, A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. Throughout the entirety of Hebrew history, God would hold Israel accountable for their treatment of widows and the fatherless. Every time the nation didn't live up to that mandate, they would come under his judgment. We also know that this Hebrew mandate was picked up by the early Christian church. Acts chapter 6 tells us there was a ministry department in their midst for the welfare of widows. In those early days, the Apostle James would write a letter which affirms this. James chapter 1, verse 27 tells us that religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress 
and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So it's abundantly clear that mothers, particularly widows, had tremendous value in God's sight. As we consider this, we can see a strong theological reason for this. You see, the very plan for the salvation of mankind was dependent on the obedience of a young expectant mother. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we see that the work of Satan, the product of his evil labors, would be brought to justice from what God poetically called the seed of the woman. Going into Isaiah 7, verse 14, this promise begins to get a bit clearer. A virgin would become a mother, and her miraculous seed will be called Emmanuel, God among men. Now, most scholars actually surmise that Joseph died while Jesus was young. So it's fair to suggest a faithful widowed mother played a key role in raising the Savior of the world. If this happened in Jesus' childhood, then he likely lived with help from the community welfare system that God commanded his people to adopt. So with all that rich thought behind us, we now come to our reading from Luke chapter 7. And I wonder if we can capture the wonder of the situation we've just read about here. Jesus has previously healed a servant belonging to a Roman centurion over in Capernaum. He would now be completing a 25-kilometer trek as he enters Nain, which was a decent-sized town in Jesus' day. And as he approached the outskirts of the town, he would notice that things weren't quite right. There's not a lot of trade activity taking place. And there's not a lot of people all that cheerful. He'll soon see why that is. There's a large portion of the town lining the street while one of their own deceased members is being carried to the cemetery outside the city gates. Although this was not a new occurrence as people died all the time, it would be clear that this would not be the sort of funeral you're accustomed to. Sometimes you have time to prepare for the departure of loved ones, with things like age or extended sickness giving us the time to get our minds around this very real part of life. But in this case, it's not the same. Jesus would walk into a procession where the crowd was in a different mindset. The body on the stretcher is clearly a lot younger than what you might expect. And the woman walking behind the stretcher can barely stand. She's inconsolable. The standard procedure of the day because of religious purification rules was to bury their dead the same day. Keeping the body even overnight was not the done thing as the home would become ritually unclean. It was all happening pretty quickly. So as Jesus arrives, the realities of things were still sinking in for this mother. Her child died today. And she was required to bury him today. And the near future would play out like this. Eventually, after a time of mourning, her friends would pay their final respects and simply get on with life. Then this lady was going to have some further struggles to contend with. Luke is quick to also point out that this woman is a widow as well. She's already buried her husband and is now burying her son. There is no pension and no life insurance. If she's able to gain employment, it's likely to be low-paid work. If she was beyond working age, she'll end up being heavily dependent on the generosity of the townsfolk. If the town behaved righteously and with justice, she would be okay. 
that Israel's track record wasn't all that good with this area of community living. But the good news here is that Jesus has intercepted these proceedings. And remember here, it's Jesus, who is God, the avenger of the fatherless and the widow, in the flesh. Jesus is instantly taken by the plight of this mother. Perhaps it even reminds him of what his own earthly mother will be facing a bit over a year's time from now. And to this mourning mother, we see three elements in play as Jesus offers ministry to the situation. First up, there is compassion. Jesus is described as compassionate so many times in his ministry. And it should be no surprise as the Heavenly Father is described the same way. Gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. The word used for compassion in the original language means to be moved as deep as the bowels, or more pointedly, to be moved in the deepest seat of emotion. This was the strongest word in their ancient vocabulary to describe the emotional place Jesus was in. And this compassion would be the motivating force behind the ministry Jesus would offer to this mother and indeed the whole community. God was simply being God here. So when a widow crossed his path, you would expect that compassion would be his response to her plight. And after compassion, there is contact. And this is big on so many levels. We read that Jesus intentionally places his hand on the stretcher they are using to carry the boy out to stop the procession. There would have been an immediate hush from the onlooking crowd at this point, partly because of the interruption but also because Jesus just touched something holding a dead person. The moment he did that, Jesus, the good Jewish rabbi, became ceremonially unclean, and the local Pharisees would be able to have a field day with that. In this passage, it was simply Jesus' way of stopping the procession so he could minister. But when we think a little more about it, we see that what he did here was actually a picture of the entire ministry of Jesus. Jesus placed himself in a physical and symbolic position of uncleanness. And from this position, he offers ministry that reverses the physical process of death. That has meaning on other levels. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 tells us that Jesus, although he knew no sin or uncleanness, was in fact made to be sin or unclean in our place, so that we could be made righteous and escape eternal death. The entire ministry of Jesus was about walking in our flawed, unclean shoes. So this event we've read about here has layers to how we can read into it. As he compassionately identifies with the grief of this mother, he also bravely identifies with the uncleanness of man. And in this place, he mercifully reverses the effects of sin and death. So with a heart of deep compassion, and after a willingness to become at least socially unclean, Jesus then meets the need of the hour. And he does this with a clear call. He leans close to the body of the young man and calls him back to life. This sort of ministry is recorded a handful of times throughout the Gospels. There was Lazarus. There was the daughter of a man named Jairus. And there is this young man. And they are all dealt with the same way. 
a call from Jesus was all it took for death to release its hold and for life to spring forth again. So let's reflect on that a little bit. I wonder if you could think about your whole life up to this point, all your experiences, all your good, all your bad, and picture it all being laid on the stretcher in this passage. Instead of a young boy, picture your whole life being carried by ancient pallbearers. With this in mind, consider what Ephesians 2 tells us about our faith. Verses 1 to 5 say this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Before Jesus came along, we were in fact dead in our sinful state. But Jesus interrupted the funeral march of our sinful life. He had compassion on us. He was made to be sin for us. He allowed his body to represent the uncleanness of mankind. And following this, he took the authority he had to call us to himself. With that in mind, the passage in Ephesians 2 finishes this way. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgression. It is by grace you have been saved. Through grace, we are called to life again. Let's never forget the state of death we were all in before Jesus came along. And always remember what Jesus did to ensure that we could live again. Friend, remember this. Outside of Christ, we are all dead in our sins. But Jesus has compassion for us in that state. He came to earth and went to a cross for us, initiating contact with all mankind and tasting punishment for our sin so that we might find life again in him. And although our sinful lives reek of death, Jesus extends his nail-pierced hands our way, and he calls us to follow him and truly live. Thanks for tuning in. To stay in touch, like our Devotions in the Deep End Facebook page and subscribe on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I look forward to catching up next time.